Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study on the disciplines of the believer's life, Pastor Murphy showed us areas where the world and the church are lacking discipline. Today we'll study the command for believers to exercise unto godliness. Now I'd like you to turn your Bibles to, with me please to the book of 1 Timothy. And those of you who have been attending the church would know that for the past uh, two Sunday mornings, uh, I have used this text as a basis for a particular theme that I've been covering. And uh, we are talking about the whole matter of spiritual discipline in godliness. And our text is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 4. I would just like to read uh, verse number 6. And verse number, the verse number eight, but our text is actually found in verse number seven. Um, but let's read what Paul says to Timothy in First Timothy chapter four. In verse six, uh, Paul says, "If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up." In the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. But refuse profane and all wise fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise. Of the life that now is and that which is to come. Our text in verse number seven, where Paul says, Exercise thyself unto godliness. Let's have a word of prayer and then we will proceed with the word. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have of being here this morning. We thank thee for the gathering of believers together. Who share the same values, the same uh, creed, the same faith, the same commitment. And we pray, Lord, as we uh, meet around your word, that we've all come for the same purpose. Our primary concern must always be when we enter your house. is not how we may be entertained and how our ears may be tickled. But what saith the Lord to us today? At this moment and this time, I ask you to uh, give us ears that are willing to hear. I pray that you might apply the spiritual eye salve to our eyes that we may see. But above all, Lord, I pray that our wills might be submitted to you and that we will be willing to yield to the dictates of your word. For Christians, I pray that we would grasp once and for all that there's no shortcut to godliness. That it requires effort, strenuous effort. And unless we discipline ourselves in the pursuit of godliness, we shall fall short of its attainment. And I pray that you would help me throughout this series of messages to stimulate believers and to galvanize their interests 
in wanting to go deeper uh, in this whole matter of spirituality and godliness. And then, Father, there may be people here this morning who are not believers, uh, who are not Christians, who do not know Christ the Savior. And I just ask you that in the process of speaking to your people, uh, you may have a word for that one who is here outside of Jesus Christ. I hope that the message would be clear and that it would be comprehensible and that it would lead to some radical desire and change in that person's life. Thank you for what you're going to do. Thank you for this church, for this congregation. Thank you for all those who are visiting with us this morning. And I pray that you may help me to do justice to your word, be able to point out what needs to be said in terms of speaking to the contemporary mind of your people. Whatever results, whatever the conclusion may be this morning, uh, we only ask that your will would be done and your people will respond as you have spoken and led them to respond. We pray these mercies in Christ's name. Amen. For the past two Sunday mornings, I have been dealing with our text, which is 1 Timothy chapter 4, which has to do with the need for the believer to come back to the point where he goes after godliness by the exercise of self-discipline. Now, I know for most of you, this is a very uncomfortable text. And it's a very uncomfortable text because uh, not many believers are currently exercising any kind of spiritual discipline in terms of uh, their pursuit of godliness. Now you notice that in the text, uh, Paul deals with two main problems that the Christian church is faced with today. The contemporary church, the problem with the contemporary church, the gist of it is actually summarized in this one verse. And the two main problems we have among contemporary believers is this. They don't have any discipline. And you you don't have to believe uh, what I just said to to accept that. There are very few believers that read the Bible every day. There are very few believers that pray every day. There are very few believers that have ever fasted. There are very few believers that ever meditate, that ever do a self-examination. Those people that do those things are the exception rather than the rule. And the other factor is this. There are very few believers whose lives are oriented towards the pursuit of godliness. And the Apostle Paul is telling to the young Timothy, you've got to discipline yourself in the pursuit of godliness. So one of the most embarrassing things about the modern church is that we have many Christians in the church, but very few who follow the biblical model and this biblical imperative to exercise themselves towards godliness. As a matter of fact, I would say to you that those two words, discipline and godliness, have disappeared from our vocabulary. Those two words are not in our minds, they're not in our mouths, they're not in the pulpit, and they're not in our culture. 
there are missing words. And you can either find them in the dictionary or in the Bible. But in terms of the lives of God's people, in the minds of God's people, they are conspicuously absent. It is not the focus of the modern believer. Could I say to you something that the average modern Christian has become what I call self-indulgent? Let me put it another way. Our whole lives are now oriented towards three things. Creature comfort, pleasure, and convenience. That is how the modern Christian's life is oriented. And the Apostle Paul is saying to the young Timothy, uh, that must not be your case. As a young man, you must discipline yourself in the pursuit of godliness. Now, because the church is the way it is, we have what I call a toxic mix today. You know what that toxic mix is? We have a hollow world and a shallow church. Boy, that's a toxic mix. See, That is why the world is the way it is. Listen, rotten meat can only be rotten meat. The only difference with rotten meat is when another element called salt is added to that meat. But rotten meat can only be rotten. It is only the salt that retards. And when you have a situation where you have a hollow world and a shallow church, it's a toxic mix. We find ourselves in a terrible Dilemma. The question I've often asked myself is, who do you blame for this situation? How do we get here? How do we have Christians every Sunday comfortable and sitting down, but there's no discipline in their life, and one thing is sure, their life is not oriented towards godliness. But how do we get here? I want to suggest to you that this disturbing trend that we've arrived at that there are three factors, I believe, that have converged to create this monstrosity of the modern church. Number one is what I call the doctrine of instant satisfaction. <laughs> our lives have been so oriented by our culture to expect what I call immediacy. We want everything and we want it when? No. We have become impatient. And you know what? Uh, what has happened? This instant mentality is destroying the church. Because we want godliness, but we don't want to put out any effort, exert any, any, any rigorous discipline to achieve it. We want spirituality and we want godliness as a gift. We want to come to church one day and the pastor says, I've got a gift for you. It's called godliness. Or come forward and lay my hand on you and guess what? You'll get godliness. That is why the, 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 the idea of letting go and let God is so popular today. Everybody is saying about, how do you become a, a spiritual Christian? Well, you just let go and let God. Where you find that in the Bible? Discipline yourself to godliness. This instant mindset that we have, our orientation to us, immediate satisfaction. The doctrine of instant satisfaction. A culture where we've got instant coffee and instant emails and instant porridge and instant grits and instant pudding and instant money transfer. Now we come into the church and we want instant godliness. And I blame that mindset. The culture 
has so infiltrated the mind of the believer that we've carried that over into the Christian faith. So we're coming to church that one day, presto, suddenly, it'll come like a, a light. We'll see a light and suddenly we are godly people. So what we want today is what I call a minimum effort in order to achieve godliness. And the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, listen young man, there's no instant way to godliness. If you're ever going to be godly, you're going to exercise yourself, discipline yourself, train yourself unto godliness. Now that's why I say that this is an uncomfortable text for the modern Christian. Because that's not in his psyche. That's not in his thinking. He has learned to come to church that the pastor will be able to solve his problem. Presto. Listen, I can do the same thing the guys on television is doing, you know. I just got to be a fake. That's all. Just be a fake and I can do exactly what they're doing on television. I can tell you come down the aisle and I put my hand on you and I, you fall over. And guess what? I gave you a little something under the thing. You just fall over when I touch you. I can do all the pyrotechnics that you see on television. But I can never be a fraud. I am committed to truth. And to teaching you truth and preaching truth. And truth is the most unpleasant, uncountable thing in the world. But I mentioned to you that I think that's the first problem. that Why we have come to the state where we are. That we got people in the church who have no discipline. No self-discipline. We've got people in church who really is not really concerned about godliness. It's not, their life is not oriented towards godliness. Their life may be oriented towards finding a girlfriend or finding a home or owning a car or a house. Or, but it's not oriented towards godliness. How do we get here? The doctrine of instant satisfaction. The doctrine of immediacy. We don't want rigorous self-effort. And then I blame something else that has created this, this situation for us. What I call the humanistic type of pseudo-evangelism. The humanistic style of pseudo-evangelism. Here's what happens. In our haste to make everybody a Christian and to boast of our evangelistic prowess. That we are great soul winners. And to chalk up numbers. In our little book, saying that we led so many to the Lord. In our haste. What we have done, really, in truth and fact, is made people twice the child of hell, and we don't even know it. So what we've done, we've brought tears into the church when we thought they were weak. But we've planted the tears. Because of the false way in which we do evangelism. We call men to faith in Christ who have no interest whatsoever in the pursuit of godliness. Now let me tell you something that I want everybody here to understand. When God shakes you up and God brings you to faith and trust in Christ, there are two things he must do in your life. He must first of all convict you that the way you're living is evil and wrong. Not that you're the best person in the world, but it makes you feel one way and one way that you are so bad that the earth should open up and consume you. That's when God is working in your life. Unless there is conviction, there can never be conversion. 
So when it comes to this whole matter of evangelism, we've got to be very, very careful that we don't make people Christians who are not Christians. And then, of course, I would suggest to you, it's not only this whole matter that there must be conviction, but it must also be this matter of repentance. You can't tell a man, bow your head and say a little prayer. Uh, do, do you want to be saved today? Uh, I want you to stand with me. Uh, are, are you a sinner? Yes, a sinner. Uh, and do you want to receive Jesus Christ today? Well, all I'm going to say is, come forward. I, I put my hand and I just want you to pray this little prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I want Jesus my Savior. And then the pastor say, you're saved. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> this is what Christianity has become. So what happened is that in obedience to the pastor, the people go through that format. And then we bring them into church. Then we baptize them. Then they become members. And then all hell break loose. All hell break loose. It's a false evangelism. We haven't talked about conviction. I have never ever tell anybody to bow their head and say any prayer if I didn't think there was any conviction in their life. Never would I do it. See? And the other thing is this. I have never ever told anybody to bow their head and say a little prayer until I let them understand what repentance is. Amen. Because if you're not convicted and you're not repentant, listen to me. I don't care who tells you you're Christian. You're not. You're not. And I blame that. Not only this culture of instant satisfaction this immediacy that we want things quickly but I also blame the fact that we apparently what is called a pseudo evangelism in our haste to win men we have not gone the biblical way to call men to about conviction and repentance and then faith we put faith first and then sometimes repentance down the line how can a man be saved without repenting you tell me there's no such animal and so I would like to say to you, I think that is the, the failure of why we, the way we've got people who don't have any discipline in their lives and don't have any desire for godliness. They have no orientation towards godliness. It's our problem. To a great extent, the church has created its own problem. And here's a third reason why we're in the situation we're in today. We have failed to do what the Bible call, emphasized to be biblical mentors. Biblical mentors. Paul took Timothy under his wings. Barnabas took John Mark under his wings. And you, you, you find that as a Christ took his disciples under his wings. He, he discipled them. He mentored them. For three years, he prepared them for the future of his absence so they will carry on the work. The church has neglected that. And so what has happened, the adult Christians have not shown any real interest in the neophyte believers, the one who just came to faith. And, and when you make a suggestion that we ought to connect them so that they, they hold each other accountable, the older ones say, you know what, I don't have time for that. You know, I, I don't like to uh, repeat things. Uh, well, when you get old, you can repeat things. People are very sympathetic towards you because you forget. Right? So maybe this is worth repeating. <laughs> But you remember when we tried to start what is called the Timothy program? 
I don't know if you can remember that. Just a few things that we required of a person. Very, I think it was three simple things. Number one, when the believer comes to church, we connect you with another younger believer. What you do, you, you, you converse with the believer when they come to church. Once a month, you, you, you take him out somewhere. Maybe have a Coke and ice cream, something. I don't know what it is. You can decide what you're going to do. You want to take and give a piece of some, some lamb or whatever. That's your business. But take him out. And then during the week, give him a call. Find out how he's doing. How many people volunteer to do that? In our church. It was a shocker to me as a pastor. And the people that I thought were here for years. But the people I thought were here for years who understood what we're trying to do. Got time for that. So let me ask you a question. How are the young believers are going to be mentored and discipled? Unless you connect an adult person with a young person. How are you going to create this desire for godliness? This, this discipline? How are you going to get it done? You tell me. So not only this instant philosophy and mindset of immediacy that we don't want to go through any any rigorous process we want we want we want to siphon off godliness into the mind we want it received as a gift by the pastor somehow coming here one minute and say this for you brother this for you this for you sister the pseudo evangelism that brings people into the church but have never really dealt with evangelism properly telling people to just close your eye and say a little prayer but have not dealt with the matter of conviction and repentance and then after we get them here now we don't even mentor them. How is the person going to make progress in holiness and, and person become, become mature? By the way, this is why the second generation is always weaker than the first generation. Because the first generation fails in passing on to the second generation. It's a tragedy of our times. So there's an urgent need for the church to rediscover the biblical doctrine the biblical imperative that we need a disciplined life if we are going to achieve godliness it's a necessity and i think you would agree with me today this morning when i say this that what we need most in the christian church today is not more gifted people is not more talented people. It's not even more intelligent people. But you know what we need? We need deeper people. See? Deeper people. That's what is need. needed. We, we need people who will explore the inner caverns. The deep inner caverns of the spiritual life. The spiritual realm. Who will leave the barren shallows of superficial Christianity. And launch out into a deep, meaningful, revolutionary Christian life. That's what we need. But that is what is conspicuously absent from the church. And Paul is reminding Timothy, there are no shortcuts, young man, to this matter of spirituality, this matter of godliness. If you're ever going to attain to godliness, it is hard work. It requires effort on your part. You must have some kind of discipline. And so there's a beckoning call in this particular passage. I wouldn't even call it a call, it's a command because in the, in the Greek language it's in the imperative mood. It's not the subjunctive mood, nor is it the, the indicative mood. It's the imperative, and the imperative mood is a mood that uh, is a mood of obligation. 
the mood of command. So what Paul is doing is not suggesting to Timothy anything. He's commanding the young man to exercise himself on the godliness. And here I think is where lies the dilemma of the modern Christian. He doesn't want to do anything that requires effort on his part. You know what we want today? We want a four-step, two-week program to God. That's what we want. Four, sweat, uh, four steps, two weeks, and then you know what? You'll be godly. Boy, if we could do that this morning, you'll rush to the altar. People rush to the altar. That's what I want, Pastor. I want godliness, but I want it in four simple steps, and in two weeks I must have it. I think Dr. J. Adams is fairly accurate when he describes the modern Christian in these terms. He said the modern Christian is one who comes to church in a service. He sits under the word of God, he hears the word of God and he's moved, moved to do something about his life. So he's now fired up and he's now determined to do something about it. He says this time it is going to be different. I am going to be the man or woman that God wants me to be. It's not going to be the same way from this time. I mean business. But by Tuesday, the fire is gone. It's already died out. Totally gone. And guess what? He pretty much goes back to his same old ways. Even though Sunday he said, I'll be never the same man again. See, I'll be a different person from today. By Tuesday, he's the same old person going back to the same old way. And believe you me, that's the experience of so many Christians. So they've come to the point where they do not believe that there's anything significantly that can be changed in their lives. And you know what? They give up hope. I've tried that before, Pastor. I've tried it before. I've made these promises before. But I find it don't even last two weeks. So what's the use of trying? And here's your problem. You want to know what your problem is? You want instant godliness. You want a quick fix. And there's no quick fix in the Christian life. And this is what Paul is here saying to Timothy. If you are going to be godly, you've got to put effort and self-discipline into it. So it's not a lack of desire. People got that desire. What we have today is a lack of sustained effort in the pursuit of godliness. We give up too soon. And so we never go any distance with God. Two steps forward, three steps backward. Two steps forward, three steps backward. Two, you know, you're like an oscillating machine. But you realize where you are, where you started, you're still back there. You ain't gone nowhere. See, lack of discipline and effort. And Paul is saying, make godliness your aim. Make godliness your objective. Orient your life and the effort of your life towards the pursuit of godliness. Now, I, I want to talk about that for just a moment. Because I believe that this should be the universal aim and objective and pursuit of a Christian. Do you not think that should be our... If we claim that we are God's people... 
If we claim that we are Christian people, if we claim that we are new creatures in Christ, if we claim that our goal is heaven, well, sir, let me ask you a question. If that is what we claim, is it not logically reasonable that the pursuit of godliness should be our aim? Should it not be the supreme purpose of our lives? Should it not occupy our minds and our efforts? Now let me just say a few words here in connection with this word that Paul uses. Uh, Listen to me. This is a word that is almost exclusively Pauline. And the thing that staggers me when I, I look at this word, and you can take a concordance and look at it, you'll find that this word godliness is mentioned 11 times in Paul's final letters, the, the, what is called the pastoral epistles. It's only in the pastoral epistles, Paul, in his final letters, is, is talking about this word. Now, I said it's almost Pauline. But there's another person that, that mentions it four times in his writings. Paul mentions it 11 times in the book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and, and the book of Titus. 11 times! You don't find it in any of the other epistles. But in the epistle of Peter, last epistle, second Peter, he also mentions this word four times. So out of the 11 instances of this word in the Bible, uh, Paul is the one that mentions it 11 times and Peter mentions it four times. And it is very significant that both of these writers mentions it in the last writings that they wrote. They keep referring again in, in Paul, in, in, in Timothy, and in Titus, godliness, godliness. Peter keeps repeating in 2 Timothy, uh, Second Peter, godliness, godliness. It's not mentioned in 1 Peter, but four times in 2 Peter, the last book, he's talking about godliness. Question. Why do you suppose this is so? Now Paul wrote 13 epistles. If you include the book of Hebrews, you wrote 14 epistles. But how come it is only in his last three writings, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, that he mentions this word? Peter wrote two epistles. 1 Peter and 2. How come it's only in 2 Peter this word keeps being mentioned four times? Paul, 11 times. You know, I think I know why. I think I know why. And you know why I know? I think I know why. Only because of the age I'm at. Listen to me. Paul is writing his final epistles. Peter is writing his, 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 his final book. What do you think is foremost in his mind? Paul is awaiting to be beheaded. As a matter of fact, you remember what he says in Timothy? I am now ready. The time of my departure is at hand. And what does Peter say? Peter says that uh, in the book of First Peter, Second Peter and verse 4, Peter said, knowing shortly that I must lay aside this tabernacle, even as the Lord has shown me, both of their minds are focused on one thing, their mortality. Time is short. And listen to me. As you get older, there's nothing that crystallizes in your mind what is really important in life. And I want to suggest to you, my dear friend, That when a man reaches the age that Paul was and and, and Peter was and I am, you look back on your life and your ministry and you try to identify what is the really crucial important thing. 
Two things you really do when you look back. You know what? You look back and see how little progress you yourself have made in godliness. You look out and you realize the wasted time, the wasted pursuits, the wasted activities, the wasted energy. Here you are, and you maybe got 10 or 15 more years left, and you're now looking at life, and you begin to realize, hey, how in the world I wasted so much of my time in all of these, all of these things? I'm going to meet God in a few years. So you know what does? It gives you a different perspective on life altogether. And that is why I believe that it's in these last epistles, both in the case of Timothy and in the case of Peter, these are men who are conscious that their days are limited. And they look back on the whole ministry and they say, you know what? What is really important is something called what? Godliness. And every one of us who have passed 50 Every one of us who are certainly above 60. One thing we are absolutely sure and you are sure of. You'll never live as long as you live already. And at best, if you are past 60, you either have between 10 and 20 years. You don't have any time more than that. God might give you an extension, but it's the exception, not the rule. The average expectancy is 70, 75. You, you, that, you, you become so aware of that. The last time I was in Barbados, uh, uh, there I had an experience that woke me up. I think I've told my family about this. I was uh, I went to stay by my mom. My mom was dead, you know, but I, I stayed by the house same all the time. And uh, uh, my body had so much heat in it that what I do, I, I lay down on the floor on the tiles. I do that very often. I know you old people do that as well. Right? Your body has so much heat, so what do you do? You don't want me call you all your senior people then, okay? But after a while, you, you lay down because you want the thing to take your heat out of your body. And I remember I, I put a pillow down and I put another pillow. And the thing about when you're getting old, no matter how you've got to position yourself, man, your neck, brother, your head. I mean, you wish you had some kind of a super pillow that would solve your problem. But you know, you young people sitting back there say, Pastor, that make no sense to me. Well, your time coming. That's right. That's right. Your time coming. But the biggest problem is sleeping at night. I mean, I never used to, I could have slept like a baby. Now, I am up three and four times a night. No matter how you position your head and when you get a pain here. So you put a pain there, you know. But you know, I went home and I was down there and I had, a, I, had I was on the fire and I put this thing on. You know what? I, I didn't know what happened, but I tried to get up and I see the whole world turning. The whole world turning. And I'm saying, where am I? I'm down there. I know what is happening. The whole thing is just turning, 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 turning. And I'm saying, but where in the world am I? Just turning, turning, turning. I try to get up. I can't get up. I crawl into the floor and I went into a city. And I said, you know what? Maybe if I close my eyes, it will go away. So what I did, I, I, I laid down again. And again, I find the whole thing turning. And then I feel like I want to vomit. So I got in my, my belly and I crawl into the bathroom and I... Couldn't even vomit. Never had that experience before in my whole life. Never had that again. And then I got the medical book and said, what in the world is this? And then I realized that there's something called vertigo. I didn't even know a word like that exists. Because it's never part of my vocabulary. 
You know what it dawned on me? It dawned on me, brother, you, 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 your time is limited. Your time is short. See? You're getting old. Or should I say you're getting older. <laughs> now, you know, when that happens, see what it does? It really puts you to the position where you ask yourself, what is this life all about? What is really important? What if God had taken me that day? So I have to, it makes you look at what is really important is godliness. That's what's really important. Listen, I have to prepare to meet my maker. I don't want to meet a stranger. I want to meet somebody that I know. So the, the, the life of the believer should be the pursuit of godliness because this life is not about here and now. This life is about the other life. It's the, this is the preamble to eternity, sir. Yes. Yes. Could I say this to you? This is not your home Amen. if you are a Christian. May I tell you something else? This is not the place where you would enjoy all kind of happiness and enjoy us. This is war. <laughs> you know, I wish we would face life. Life is hard. It will be hard. It's not designed to be a cruise. But the problem with us Christians is this. We want our pie now. We want it then. We're not prepared to go through anything that is hard. And that's what this whole life is about. It's about preparing me for... Listen, can I say something to you? The parallel of the Christian faith is the wilderness journey of Israel. You're brought out of Egypt. You're brought out of salvation, out of sin. You're now on a journey to the promised land. It's called heaven. See? But what has happened? You've got this wilderness journey you've got to make. And guess what? In that wilderness journey... You're going to have problems where you don't, your needs are, are sometimes coming to conflict. No water, no food. See? Yes. Now what is all of that doing you? The whole thing, what is God doing? God is like a great sculptor with a chisel and a hammer. And he has an image he's created that's called the image of Christ. And you're the raw material. So what he's got to do, he's got to chip you away here and chip you away there. Because what he's looking at is not how good you look. What he's looking at is how much you are more like my son by the time he's finished with you. And sometimes we need surgery, radical surgery. And God knows that. This word that Paul uses in this particular passage, godliness, it comes from three different Greek terms that are all blended together. The first one is the word eu, and it means well. The next word is the word sobamai, and it means to devout, to be devout. And the next word is theos. So you put those together is, is a, a well-devout life that is focused on God. That's what it is. A life that is focused on God, devoted to God, devoted to the pursuit of God. It is reverence for God. It's a Godward attitude that seeks in all of life to please God and to live for God. In layman's terms, it means striving to become more like God daily. It wants a godliness that's embodied in your deeds, in your emotions, in your sentiments, in your creed, in the whole of your life. 
It is trying to please God by being and thinking and doing and feeling like he wants you to be. It's a term that should permeate all of our lives, every aspect. So it's not only that I want to do works and, and, and outward deeds and actions that please him, but I want my thoughts to be pleasing to God. I want my sentiments to be pleasing. I want my emotions to be pleasing to God. I want what I say to be pleasing to God. My life is so oriented that I have become now a God pleaser. So when Paul says to Timothy, exercise yourself to godliness, that's what Paul is referring to. In your life, trying to reflect the moral character of God. And in your life, trying to glorify God by a life of obedience to his will. Look, those are abstract terms. Let me put it this more way. The pursuit of godliness is becoming like Jesus. I think we all understand that one. And can you tell me any two things that you know about Christ that sums up his entire life? First of all, he reflected the moral character of God. But above everything else, his whole purpose was what? I am come to do what? Thy will, O God. See? That is what the pursuit of godliness is all about. And I want to challenge the believer to understand that this must be how your life must be oriented towards the pursuit of godliness in your thinking in your behavior in your conduct in your emotions in your actions every aspect your main concern is to please God to fulfill God's will he's the objective he's the goal he's the aim he's the one you look towards to be like you are to, to pursue that Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us what is meant by the word exercise in the believer's pursuit of godliness. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.